preaching of God's Word indeed is in 1 John chapter 3, which we began last week and conclude this brief series today as we think of our adoption. And here we saw last week the great grace that is therein displayed. Here we see the way in which it is to motivate us unto holiness. So here again, these three verses, 1 John 1, or 3 rather, verses 1 to 3. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew Him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. We know that when we, He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And every man that hath this hope in Him purifieth himself, even as He is pure. Well, last week we considered these verses particularly focusing on verses 1 and 2 as the great display of God's love. It's not the only display, but it is nonetheless a great display. This is why John says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. You can imagine it this way, that you're driving down perhaps a new road and someone who's familiar with it is pointing out the sights, some of which are difficult, difficult to identify. And yet he points out and says, Look there. And your eyes untrained sort of don't pay attention and you sort of nod and look. No, no, no. Look there. Behold it. Fix your eyes on it. That's the weight of this. John is getting us to consider well, faithfully, diligently what he's presenting. And so you can think back perhaps as children going to an art museum or some other uh, place of fine arts. As a child, you're disinterested and a teacher or a parent or someone who has understanding comes and says, you need to look at this and see what the artist was doing. Look at the contrast and Look at the texture and look how the way this is playing together and directing your thoughts to this and the image that is there presented and so on. And as a child, we're sort of careless and whatever. And they say, no, no, look at this. And for a split moment, it seems, the child gets a little sense of the wonder here that yet can't fully be realized until they mature and understand more fully the skill and the technique and all of those things. In some sense, that is what John is doing. He is one who has been schooled in the beauty of God's grace. He is, of course, John the Beloved. And he is frequently the one who is known to be as much of all of the privileges all twelve of the apostles had. You can search and find, but one apostle was noted Think of this language, to be the disciple whom Jesus loved. Isn't that a striking expression? doesn't mean that the others weren't loved, but there was a special intimacy that the Savior had with John that in many ways exceeded the earthly intimacy with others. said that John was the one who set his head upon the chest of our Savior. What intimacy is there? In our own culture, that would, of course, seem strange, and yet we would understand the intimacy of such a thing. And so the point is, John is one who has enjoyed the blessings and the fellowship of Christ. And we are like the little children 
surrounded by the uh, beautiful artifacts of skill and technique that excel what mere common men can perform. And here's John pointing out to us, look at this. And we say, yeah, yeah, John, I get it. And he says, no, behold it. Fix your attention on it. What is it, John, you want us to see? I want you to consider well the manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. John, I get it. From my infancy, I've been told God has loved me. No, no, you're missing it. Here's what I want you to figure out. Here's what I want you to understand. You who are but dust, but a creature, worse than that, a creature who has sinned against God, by His grace, you are now brought in to be His child. Consider well, meditate upon this, this love of God. And yet, there's more as we saw. It doth not yet appear what we shall be. There is more to come. There's more beauty to realize. There's more glory to come forth. But we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. See, John, as experienced and as trained and as exercised in the love of God, as he was, was yet one who was waiting for more to come. And he who had anticipated it is saying to his brothers and sisters, you need to anticipate this. Well, many have, of course, twisted the teaching of God's grace to say if God is gracious, if He loves us, if He cares for us, then what's the big deal? Let's just sort of have a casual, cool, easy life. And John says, no, no. Notice verse 3. Every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. Now try as you might, you cannot reduce the standard of holiness that John has just stated, nor can you find any whisper of gloom. The highest standard of holiness and the fullest delight of God's love are brought together in this passage. Think of it for a moment. He purifies Himself even as He is pure. Now, there is some allowance here. What's the antecedent of He who is pure? Is it Jesus Christ? Is it God? Well, it doesn't matter ultimately, does it? Because the Father, who is mentioned in verse 1, and Jesus Christ, who by implication is mentioned when it is said that we shall see Him as He is, will be like Him, both are perfect in holiness. And so there's no reducing of the standard. He purifies Himself even as He is pure. And yet, there's nothing in this verse of some rigorous and undesirable approach to pursuing it. Everyone that hath this hope, the word is expressive of a confident expectation, everyone who is assured of this love, everyone who is assured of this grace, 
everyone who is assured of this glory. That's what John's saying. Every single one is devoted to purity. You see, this challenges the caricature of holiness and the caricature of grace. And so often, isn't it the case that these are pit against one another? And so you get sort of the caricature of the furrowed brow and the, you know, sort of bony complexion of one who's about holiness. And they're sort of always dreadful in a negative sense. Of course, they should be dreadful. Every Christian should be dreadful in the sense that they are grave people. They are men and women of spiritual weight. That's right. But rather, the caricature is one of, you know, uh, um, bitterness and resentment and so on. And they're always looking around with a caustic and critical eye. That's the world's view of holiness. And frankly, it has infiltrated much of the visible church. To be concerned about holiness necessarily means we're going to be filled with all sorts of bitter resentment. The other side is the case that the caricature of grace and understanding of hope and love and forgiveness and adoption and assurance and glory to come and heaven is this light-hearted, frothy carelessness regarding the Lord's written law. I don't need to worry about the law because I'm saved. I don't need to worry about His commandments because I'm forgiven. I don't need to worry about holiness because I have heaven. And yet, don't you see how this one passage utterly destroys both of those caricatures? That to think of holiness in the first way we've discussed is utterly at odds with the Scriptures. But to think of one who understands grace, as we've described, is equally at odds with the Scripture. This is why, throughout the history of the church, from the early church to the present day, it has been faithfully declared, in accordance with God's Word, that the happiest saint is the holiest, and the holiest saint is the happiest. These two go together. And this passage, among others, helps us see how it is so. So notice that this holiness that follows, purifying himself even as he is pure, belongs to everyone that has this hope. So we want to look at three things as we conclude this two-part series on adoption from these three verses. Firstly, looking at the motive for holiness. Secondly, the activity of it. And thirdly, the standard. The motive, activity, and standard of purifying ourselves. So what is then the motive? And it is fundamentally important to get this right. If we err here, we may do much outwardly to pretend to holiness, but we will do nothing unto real holiness. What is the motive that John presents here? Well, negatively, we can say this. Nowhere does John present holiness as a way to earn heaven or to earn God's favor. In other words, John doesn't set us forth to say, if you want this hope, purify yourself as he is pure. He doesn't present this to us as a means to gaining this hope. Nor does he present any sort of motive that says, do this in order that men would know 
that you are holy. So he sets aside some things by saying what it is. Rather, the motive is twofold. It is first and foremost what he calls us to consider. The love the Father hath bestowed upon us. That's the motive. The motive for holiness that permeates the Christian soul is the love of God to us in Jesus Christ. And if you know in sincerity, not by lip service, not by confession of faith, intellectually acknowledge, but if you know the love of God, you will be unrelentingly pursuing holiness. Because the glory, the wonder of so glorious a God saying, I have set my love upon you, is like a magnet drawing us to Himself. It's interesting, men love to speak about newlyweds as those who are just infatuated with one another. Of course, there are reasons for that. But if you track actually a maturing uh, couple through decades, you will see that they are more infatuated with one another than the honeymoon. There is a greater intimacy physically, emotionally, spiritually, that has grown through so that to be separated is not something that they like. They long to be together. They want to be with one another. Why is that? Well, if such is the case, by God's grace, their mutual expressions of love have been blessed of God to knit themselves closer to one another through the ages. It is a tragic statement to say something like, they fight like those who have been married a long time. That is a misjudgment of marriage. To be bickering one with another shouldn't be a mark of long life together. It should be the mark of infantile selfishness of newlyweds. Rather, The way that one speaks to one another in marriage after decades of marriage together should be not with the sarcasm of put-downs, but rather with the delight of encouragement, strengthening, and so on. Why is that the case? Because love is a drawing emotion. It draws one to the other. If we love something, we we use that expression sometimes lightly, sometimes significantly. A child who says, I love candy... We know right away what that means. We may say, well, you know, love should be reserved for other things, but we know what they mean. They see candy, they want candy. When someone says, I love this kind of music, that's the kind of music they choose to listen to. Because they're expressing, perhaps with the wrong word, but nonetheless, we understand it, this sense of they're drawn to it, and they want more of it. Well, think of how the Scriptures speak of love. And so you can think of God's love, what is, even here, the manner of love which the Father hath bestowed upon us. And so He's seeking us. Christ loved us and gave Himself for us. You see in the Song of Solomon, uh, Christ as the husband and the church as the bride are constantly expressing their love of being drawn to one another and expressing, draw me and we will run after thee. Right? Love is a drawing Emotion, affection. You think of how it's discussed about uh, people in the church and toward one another. Charity suffereth long and is kind. And so it's a, 
an orientation of an affection which serves the other. Well, what's the point? It's this. When we are persuaded of God's love, which is here the preeminent motive set down, it will draw us to Him. Who is it that is drawing us? It's God by His love. To whom are we being drawn? It's God. Well, who is this God? Children should be able to say this. He is a spirit, infinite, and eternal, and unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. What a summary that is for us. But think of that for a moment. This is the holy God who cannot look upon sin. And so if we're drawing closer to Him, what will be happening to us? We'll be purifying. When people in this world are drawn closer to one another, we pick up on it. The way they talk mimics the other. The way they dress mimics the other. And so in many ways, parents can look at their children and see who they've been around. You know, you're talking like so-and-so. You must have been around so-and-so today. Or some of us have parents who have had relatives from the deeper south and you didn't have to know by name who they were talking to. You just heard them on the phone and the twang turned on and you say, oh, they're talking with that relative, right? Why is that? Because the more we spend time around someone, the more we become like they are. We reflect them. Perhaps it's one reason that you can look at married couples and say, you know what, they sort of resemble one another, right, after time. What's the point? When it is we know God's love, either He's going to change or we are. Now you know from the outset that there's no possibility that He's going to change because He is the unchangeable, holy, gracious God. But praise to His name, He is going to change us. And this is what John is getting at. Notice related to this motive, it's not just His love in general, but this particular love, of course other aspects of His love are mentioned elsewhere, but it's this particular love that He has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. And so there's even more here because He's brought us into His family to train us, to provide for us, and to express further His love. In other words, it's not just the one-time act that He's made us so to be His sons, but as sons, we continue to enjoy the expression of His love. It's a constant, unending provision of His love. Few in this room, perhaps, will have first-hand experience of being adopted. Perhaps you've talked to some. Perhaps you know of some who have been adopted and have been adopted by loving parents. All of us, I imagine, will know somebody who has either been a foster parent or a foster child or an adoptive parent or adopted child, whatever it is. And when there's love in that, you talk to the child who has a background of either being an orphan or being essentially one by abusive parents, and then they're brought into a family that loves them. And they're given help and they're given clothes to dress their bodies and food to nourish their bodies. We've heard stories of those whose parents were so given to sin that while they wasted away with their drunkenness and abuse of things, their children of three, four, five years old had to learn how to make food for themselves. These things happen. And then that family brings that child into their home. 
not only, as it were, breaking the cycle, as it were, of all of those sins, but now establishing a culture of love and kindness that will last the rest of their lives. It's a striking thing. Brethren, the most wondrous story of an earthly adoption from the most adverse circumstances to the highest and most noble standing is dust compared to the glory of what you have been given as a Christian. You have been brought out of darkness and damnation into the household of the living God. We say this reverently. The angels don't have that. Do you understand it? The angels are not the adopted children of God. The angels who have never sinned do not have as great of intimacy with God as you are privileged to enjoy. You are brought as a son or daughter of the Lord into His family. Not just for the spectacle of that wonder, but to enjoy all of His privilege. Think of it. This is the new covenant in My blood. All of the promise, all of the inheritance is now given over to you to enjoy. Brethren, the motive goes further because that's what we have right now. But as we saw, the motive extends to what we will have regarding the coming glory. This is the motive. This is what John says should move us unto holiness. So consider then secondly the activity. And you'll notice that John expresses it this way. Every man that hath this hope, this confidence, this certainty of the assurance of God's love and the glory to come, everyone who has this, notice the language, purifieth himself. The word purify is just as you and I would think. If you have pure water, you have water that is not contaminated. Right? In our own modern society, it would be hard for us to imagine drinking from even a clear river because our bodies have over time become so accustomed to having the most purified of water so that to drink even sometimes another person's tap water can so upset our stomachs that we have problems. Purity is part of our daily life when it comes to water. And yet, brethren, notice this has nothing to do with physical, material things we eat and drink because the thing being purified is ourselves. Everyone that hath this hope in Him purifies himself. Now this is getting to sanctification because notice as He is pure, God is only pure. There's no defilement in Him. And so there's this gradual and progressive work that is ongoing. Purifieth. He purifies. He's at it and it's continuing to be at it. Now to understand this, it may challenge us because we step back and say, wait a second, time out. You know, even the catechism summarizes and says, it is the work of God's grace. Right? Isn't God the one who sanctifies us? And so how is John able to say, that we purify ourselves, right? Wouldn't we contend, no, no, you can't purify yourself. Only God can purify you. Well, what's taking place is 
a, a matter of equivocation. We're using one term in one way and then replacing it in another with another way. What John's getting at is not a denial of the sovereignty of God's grace that activates and works within us, but he's affirming the fuller portion of it. So you can see this perhaps most clearly in the book of Hebrews, at least as far as a simple and uh, small passage is concerned. There are others, of course. You can see the whole of the book of Romans speaks to this. But notice Hebrews chapter 13 and verses 20 and 21. Here's the benediction. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do His will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Notice there in verse 21, working in you that which is well-pleasing in His sight. What Hebrews is getting at is this work of sanctification is an internal work whereby He renews us and leads us to love what is good and to despise what is evil and thus to walk in the way of the Lord. And so it is that the Lord's work in us is a real transformation. We see this in many other places, of course, that it is God that works in us to will and to do of all His good pleasure. So in other words, this activity is begun and maintained by God's grace. And so John is speaking of one side of this issue. He's speaking of the outworking of what God is inworking. Right? So there's the inworking of God's grace of sanctification, the work of His grace, whereby He's making us to will and to do, but the making us to will and to do is a real effect. It's a real work, whereby we then are brought to will and to do of all His, his good pleasure. So sanctification is the work of God's free grace, but it is such a work whereby He causes a real activity in the believer that leads us to will and do of God's good pleasure. This is why John is able to say that we are active in purifying ourselves. Now, what does this mean? It doesn't mean that we are first in purifying ourselves. Notice again, every man that has this hope purifies himself. In other words, if we expand that expression, this hope, every man who is in God's family by God's grace, every man who is a son and daughter of God by His grace, every man who is loved of God, every man who is saved by God. And so the grace of salvation proceeds. But where the grace of salvation proceeds, it works within us unto this holy activity so that the outworking of His grace will show itself in the real thoughts and desires and actions of the renewed person unto purity. We think for a moment, otherwise it would make zero sense that God gives us warnings, admonitions, promises, encouragements, commandments. So God doesn't turn us into robots religiously. He continues to work 
through our thoughts and wills. And so there are warnings. A warning comes morally to persuade us against that which is warned. There are encouragements. An encouragement comes to persuade us of the good that is held forth. There are commandments. The commandments come in order to teach us the way we should go. There are promises which come to provide us what the Lord would give. All of this and many more are combined to direct us and help us in this pursuit. Every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself. Well, if we are to purify ourselves, it means several things in this activity. It means that there is a work of understanding or discernment. So if you think about for a moment water and you take a toxic chemical that's clear and can only be detected through certain tests, you know, strips that are dipped in and so on, or other chemical tests that would go forth, you have to understand what you're doing to identify the thing that needs to be removed. And so you don't just sort of eyeball it and say, well, they're all clear liquids, so I think I'll choose this one. But rather, there is an examination. There is a discerning element to find out what is the impurity. What degree is it impure? How do I remedy this impurity? How do I purify this all the more? Right? The same is true of our souls. We don't just sort of shoot from the hip, but rather, when the Lord has been gracious to us and is working out this grace of sanctification, He causes our minds to be engaged, to search the Scriptures, to reflect upon ourselves, and to identify the things that need to be purified, taken away. So you have different ways of speaking of this when Paul speaks of the old man and his lusts. You have Christ speaking of it in very uh, physical ways. An eye that would cause us to stumble. A hand that would cause us to stumble. Well, to identify those things... We have to know what stumbling is and how it is that these other things are contributing to it, right? And so the activity is a discerning activity whereby we are taught by the Word of God to identify the impurity. But it's more than that. You know, none of us would say, well, this cup has toxic elements within it and that's the end of the story, right? The next step is to deal with it. And spiritually, The work of understanding and discernment comes to a work of judgment whereby we condemn the impurity. This is perhaps, these two things regarding the spiritual activity of purifying ourselves is the first step that most in the church don't care about. Because we don't care to identify the impurity, we'd rather be content to say it's okay. You know, it's sort of like, You go to a pool that's treated with chlorine. And in one sense, you could say, is this water pure? Well, it's pure to swim in. But if you saw your children dipping down their cups and about to drink it, you wouldn't say, that's okay. You'd say, no, no, it's not that kind of purity. The church has been contented with an outward purity. Well, we don't have all of the scandalous sins of this, that, and the other. And yet, as far as heart purity... There's little concern about it. And brethren, this is not something that we're merely leveling against certain fringe movements. It has infiltrated the Reformed Church. And so the Reformed Church in certain sectors 
has thought, so long as I have an outward life free of scandal, that's the only degree of purity I need to worry about. But historically, and more importantly, biblically, the Scriptures, as Christ was teaching, is not only concerned about the outward appearance, but is regularly addressing the heart. So remember, he says of the Pharisees, you're like whited sepulchers. Now, we today can look at pictures, even high-definition images, and we can see some of these things, and we are astounded at the craftsmanship and the beauty of some of these ancient tombs. Christ saw those things. They saw those things. And He said, you're like those things. But instead of that making us say, we've got it together, He says, in the outward you're beautiful, but on the inside you're full of dead men's bones. You see, Christ had His eye on an inward purity. And this is where our discernment has to go as well. In other words, if we're purifying ourselves, certainly we're asking, you know, what is my speech like? What is my behavior like? What, how do I use my time? And what's my marriage like and my family and my participation in the church? And all, all these outward things, that's right. But we don't say, yep, I've got a good marriage, I've got a good family, I've got a good job, I'm going to church, all those things, that's all. No, because the purity with which we're concerned is a purity like unto God. It's a holiness that permeates all that we are. Now before we say, now we're getting heavy, remember the motive is the enjoyment of God's love. It's not in order to secure God's love. It is because of His love to us that we are then able and willing with assurance to take the eye and scope of God's Word and search our hearts and say, Lord, don't only cause me to see it, but make me then to level judgment against it and say, this is sinful. And by God's grace, I make my plea that you would cause it to be crucified in me. Now, brethren, think about what that means. Because it means things like your pride. It means things like your selfishness. It means things like your arrogance. It means things that are hard to outwardly point to. And yet upon examination, you know full well where those things are. And those are the things that are like the fish taken out of the water in your hand with all of its slime that's hard to hold on to. Because it's ever trying to escape back into the depths where it can rest and be at peace and yet thrive to the undoing of our souls. And so to purify ourselves requires spiritual grace both to discern not only the obvious outward things, but the spiritual things as well. And we might say this is difficult. Indeed it is. But it's not impossible to those who are the sons of God who have the assurance of God's love, the provision of His grace, which leads then to a purifying activity of the will, whereby we not only condemn that sin, but then we, by God's grace, take hold of Christ and not only appeal to Him for pardon, but appeal to Him for purifying. This, you see, is great encouragement because we're appealing to our elder brother who loves us. He's not like the abusive brother who's always going around and slapping us on the back of the head and kicking us in the shins. He's a loving brother who has moved toward us and wants to help and care and serve. And so as we discover these things in us, we can go to our elder brother and say, I need your help. 
I need you who have accomplished everything for me. You who are the essential Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. I need you to address me that I would be more like you. It grieves the heart of parents to see siblings bicker, fight, and war. But brethren, with your elder brother, there is no bickering or warring against us, but there is a delight and a willingness to help. The purifying activity leads us ultimately to God in Christ that by Him we would take His work applied to us and be transformed to a loving of these things. This is why we treasure His Word. Because it helps us see, in thy light shall I see light. This is why we delight in His songs. Because as we sing the psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, the Word of Christ dwells in us richly in all wisdom. This is why we delight in attending church. Because we hear the voice of our Savior who provides us guidance, reproof where needed, encouragement where needed, promises where needed. This is why we love in our homes to have seasons of prayer. It's not just, though it is, it's not just duty. It is a delight to pursue these things because it's in the fellowship of love. And it's the way by which then we purify ourselves. What is then the standard thirdly? The standard is quite plain even as He is pure. Both Christ's personal purity is the standard, which of course is perfect, and yet we only know Him as He has made Himself known in His Word. And so it's according to His Word. This is the standard. Brethren, this should challenge us to the extent in other brothers and sisters we see Christ It's as if Paul said, follow me as I follow the Lord. We say, I want that. But that person doesn't become our standard. It's Christ who is our standard. It's Christ who loved us and is the one who has paid the ransom that we would be delivered from our condemnation and brought not only into a state of justification, but brought into the family of God in adoption so that He, by His blood, has purchased us And yet, likewise, has He secured for us this grace that we might walk as He is. Brethren, this is the great beauty. It's not perfectly true in lives and families in this world, though you can see whispers of it. If you you hang around certain families and you know the parents, you start to see family likenesses in the children. Some of it's physical, of course, But much of it is mannerisms. They talk certain ways. They behave certain ways. And so on. There's a family likeness. Yet every once in a while, there's the one who sort of stands out and you wonder, you know, what's going on. Well, with adoption in this world, there may, of course, be rebellious adopted children or wicked adoptive parents. And so there may never be a likeness that is cultivated between the adopted one and the adoptive parents. But in God's family, here's the beautiful thing. The one who is most glorious, perfect in beauty, perfect in love, perfect in holiness, 
is not only bringing us legally into His home, but in His home, by His grace, He is causing us to be transformed to bear His likeness. So that a great miracle of grace takes place. That the one who is brought into the home of God's grace by Jesus Christ is likewise made to be one who resembles Him more and more until, to go back to verse 2, the perfection of the transformation shall take place that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Brethren, it's a beautiful thing, isn't it? To come across saints who have walked with the Lord for decades. And there are certainly spots and wrinkles spiritually, but you see people who have grown in humility. You wonder at their love to the Lord. It's a great privilege for some of us to have known those who have been aged in the Lord and as they neared their 80s and 90s, and their body became more and more frail, yet the Lord sustaining the faculty of their mind and most importantly their grace, it was as if they were in the zenith of their strength rejoicing in the Lord. And as they faced trials, children going through horrible things, the breakdown of other situations in this world, yet all they could speak of was Jesus Christ. And though they would speak with tears over the sins of children and the sins of the church, yet they couldn't go a prayer without rejoicing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what you see is this beautiful display of the full scope of one being ripened for heaven, where they generally or genuinely mourned the brokenness of this sin-cursed world, and yet at the same time were able genuinely to rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ and both together with such beauty, balance, and fullness that we felt ourselves to be in the presence of one who had one foot already in heaven. These are rich memories to us. And we long to be by God's grace like unto that should the Lord give us life. That our lives would be full of such purity of conduct, purity of thought, purity of petition, purity of speech, that we were consumed with God in Christ Jesus. And though we could entertain small talk, oh, how we delight to turn that small talk into something full of Christ. Brethren, if you've had that privilege, the privilege you've had is the outworking of this passage. Those men and those women were those who beheld the love of the Father who has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Well, brethren, if you would be moved unto holiness, the first thing you need to do is to take time to behold God's love. There are excellent books you should read. There are excellent passages you should memorize. There are excellent commandments that you need to think through how it applies to you. We saw that in some of what has already been mentioned in the act of purifying. But if you would be moved to that holiness, you must 
without any exception, consume yourself with the display of God's love to you in Christ. There's no other way, pathway, direction, advancement in holiness without this being the air you breathe all along the way. As soon as you stop taking in the love of God, your soul will suffocate and you'll start gasping and you'll start trying to put on certain things and yet without energy. Some of us have been in pools or the ocean and we've gone underwater and perhaps in the ocean the wave has tossed us and we panicked underwater and we're losing our orientation and we start to realize I'm still underwater and I don't know if I can make it. Where am I? And the panic that grips us makes us flail and move in these awkward and yet panicked ways. That's the outworking of a soul which does not breathe in the love of God. It's uncontrolled and it's out of order. And instead of being in the beauty of holiness, it's in a false imitation which will either show itself in Pharisaic outwardness or in the end, despairing and open itself to all carnality. The only way to maintain and pursue purity is to be constant in the enjoyment of God's love. Yes, there are books you should read, but you must read them in the context of God's love. Yes, there are commandments you must submit to, but you must submit to them in the context of the assurance of God's love. Yes, there are sins that you must repent of, and yet the only way to repent of them is out of a true sense of your sin as well as persuasion of the love of God to us in Christ Jesus. See, if you would be moved to holiness, the only thing that will truly move you unto true holiness is the true love of God in Christ Jesus. So for a moment, consider well, has that been the intake of your soul over the last week? Have you personally and in your family been much in consciously considering the love of God to you? Because if you've not, there's no hesitation in saying this, you have lost out on growth and holiness. The only way to grow is to take in these things. Consider it this way. You know, you have to have certain things for life. You have to have oxygen, water, nourishment, and so on. Well, plants have to have things. Children know this. They have to have access to light. You know, at least most plants do. And oxygen and carbon dioxide and nutrients from the soil. Well, as soon as you uproot the plant and you then place it in darkness and surround it with some structure and suck out the oxygen and the carbon dioxide, you've guaranteed to do something to that plant. Kill it. However beautiful it was, however mature it was, however fruit-bearing it was. Isn't this why Christ says, I'm the vine, you're the branches, abide in me and you'll bear much fruit? You see, what's He getting at? It's the same thing. The only way to holiness is by the abiding in Christ, in love, taking in, so that you may then put out by His grace. Meditate then on this love, upon your current privileges, upon your coming glory. And yet, brethren, as you do, 
you will be moved because of the sight of the beauty of His holiness and of His love to search yourselves and say, no longer do I want these things because I want more the fellowship of God. You know, a husband who is in love with his wife less and less needs to be said, you know, don't commit adultery. Don't commit adultery. Because the husband in love with his wife is drawn to his wife out of love and delight. Doesn't mean there's not a place, of course, because in this world there's sin. A child who increasingly loves his father and mother less and less, as it were, needs to be worn with the rod. You know, you need to do this. Because, as it were, their love compels them. And so it is in our pursuit of holiness that we with delight would be drawn to Him. Oh, believer, here is a fact. You are beloved of God. You are His child by grace. And you need to meditate on that if you should grow in your holiness. And as you do, by His grace, may it be that He would work within you and by that, you would purify yourself even as He is pure. Would you stand with me then for prayer?